Hello and welcome to the Use Because podcast. Deeper learning from the best business minds to have ever put pen to paper. You're on a game show and look at you, you've made it to the final round where you are in with a chance of winning a car. All you need to do is to select the right door. There's three doors in front of you. Two of the doors have booby prizes, let's say it's goats, right, there's a goat behind each door. And one of the doors has a brand new shiny sports car. All you need to do is pick door one, two or three. Here's what happens. Let's imagine that you pick door number one and the host, he's then going to show you something that might trip you up. And what he's going to do is this, you've picked door number one and he now shows you one of the other doors. He opens, for example, let's say door number three and he shows you a goat. There's a goat behind door number three. So now you're left with door number one and door number two. And the host of the show asks you, would you like to switch? Do you want to switch from door number one to door number two? Should you switch? That's the question that were, that confounded people, PhD students, back in the day, it was called, still is called, the Monty Hall problem. Should you switch doors? So let me just explain the scenario one more time. You're on a game show, there's three doors. Behind one of the doors is a fantastic shiny new sports car. Behind the other two doors are booby prizes, goats, right, is the example that they use when they talk about this problem. You pick door number one. The host then tries to tempt you to switch from your choice. And he, he tempts you by showing you what's behind door number three. And he shows you that it's a goat. So now you're left with door number one or door number two. And the question is, should you switch? Is it, is it in your interest to stick with door number one or should you switch to door number two? Now, intuitively, you would think, well, what's the difference? It's a 50-50 chance. But the answer is, you should switch. And let me explain why, because that sets up what we're going to talk about in this particular podcast today. It's all about lies and statistics, and we'll get into the title of the book in a minute. But in that particular game show problem, it's called the Monty Hall problem. You should switch. And here's why. The probability of you selecting the right door at the very beginning is one in three. Now, if you know anything about probability, and I'm probably uh, preaching to the choir here, or singing to the choir, whatever the expression is. But if something is definitely going to happen, in probabilistic terms, you'd call that a one, right? If something is definitely going to happen, it's a one. If something is definitely not going to happen, it's a zero. And then the chances lie in between. A one in three chance, a one in six chance, two in five chance, whatever. So, in this scenario, you have three doors, you've picked door number one you had a one in three chance of selecting the correct door. But now what happens is Monty Hall, the the host of the TV show, he now shows you door number three that has a goat behind it. But in probability terms, it has to, all, all the options have to add up to one. So if you think at door number one, that's a one in three chance, door number two, that's a one in three chance. And door number three, that's a one in three chance, right? At the very beginning of the scenario. You've picked yours, right? I've picked door number one, a one in three chance. That means between door two 
and door 3, there's a 2 and 3 chance. You take your, your 1 and 3 and your 1 and 3 and you add them together. There's a 2 and 3 chance that it's in, that the, the prize you're looking for is in door 2 or door 3. But the problem here is that the host has showed you door number 3. He showed you that the prize is definitely not there. So the probability of the prize being behind door number 3, it collapses to 0. But you still need all of your options to add up to 1. So your door is a 1 and 3 chance. Door 2 and 3 together, that was a 2 and 3 chance. But we know it's definitely not door number 3. That means that door number 2 has to take all of that probability. The 2 and 3 chance now lies with door number 2. This caused a huge problem back in the day for, uh, like I said, PhD students and um, uh, mathematical wizards um, who just could not agree with what was right and what was wrong. One of the simplest ways to explain why it is uh, always worth your while switching is imagine that it's not three doors. Imagine that it's a million doors. So you're on some sort of crazy quiz show in the future where they have access to a million doors and they say pick one. There is a shiny new car behind one of these doors and the rest of the doors, 999,999 doors, they all have goats. There's a lot of goats. They've got goats behind the rest of them. So you pick, let's say for example, let's stick with the same one. You pick door number one. But then what the host does is the same thing. He shows you lots of doors that do not have the shiny new sports car. So the host collapses all of the probability down to the door you picked and one other door. So he opens 999,998 of the other doors. And now he says, would you like to switch? So you think about it. Your chances at the very beginning were one in a million. The chances that it's now in the other door now looks an awful lot more obvious. But this is the problem that the author talks about, not specifically this problem, but this is the kind of problem that the author talks about in the podcast that we're discussing today, and it's called A Field Guide to Lies and Statistics. It's by a guy called Daniel Levitin, and it is a, a great read. He, he, he's, he's taken a very mathematical approach here, if you, or an engineer's approach, uh, I think, or he's actually a neuroscientist, um, to how he actually breaks up this book. I'll just give you the, the, the three parts. Part one is how to evaluate numbers. Part two is evaluate, evaluating words. And part three is evaluating the world. So that problem that I gave there, it isn't, as, as far as I can remember, it's not mentioned in the book itself. It's called the Monty Hall problem. But what it explains, or I, what I think, it, it's, it's what I thought about when I was reading this book, is that your intuition for probability and your intuition for statistics isn't always right. And if you add into the fact that other people know that you're only taking a glancing look at these statistics, whether it's to do with um, coronavirus, whether it's to do with um, sales in a company or whatever, data can be massaged to tell you whatever, whatever you wanted to tell you. Um, I, I read something on Twitter today actually that said, uh, if you torture data enough, it'll tell you anything that you want to hear. And it's so true. And this ties in perfectly with another book we did recently called Sense Making by uh, Kristen Madsberg, which I've talked about a lot. It's actually, 
I think interestingly it's been by far our most popular uh, podcast episode um, and I guess we are living in an age where there is so much data but very little insight so what people probably tend to do is they probably look for quick easy answers like in that Monty Hall problem where somebody would just say well you know I picked door number one I'm left with door one or door two I'll just stick with what I have. It's a 50-50 chance. Maybe I'll switch, maybe I won't. But the mathematics behind it says that you should switch every time. You're not guaranteed to win every time, but the chances of you winning are doubled by switching. And again, it's 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 one of those things that people argue about all the time, this Monty Hall problem. Um, it's also called uh, the three prisoners problem, which is the, it's, it's the same mathematical um, equivalency in, 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 in that scenario, but it's, it's the same kind of thing. And it's, it's, like I said, it's what I thought about when I was reading through this book, uh, Field Guide to Lies and Statistics, that uh, you can't always rely on just the raw data that's given to you. It's how this data is presented. So this book is a treasure trove for how to make sense of all the information that's out there. One of the things they said is that in the last, I think, let me see if I can remember, in the last five years, uh, We've made, we've created more information than in all of human history before those five years. And he, it's a great. I'm gonna. This I've actually underlined this in the book here. Uh, it says misinformation is promiscuous. Misinformation spreads way quicker than correct information. For some reason, misinformation or things generally, I would imagine, because they're more salacious and they're more um, and more shocking when when things are are misrepresented it becomes promiscuous and that, that kind of thing spreads like a meme and uh, propagates around the world and before you know it um, people are freaking out over all sorts of things one of the things he talks about is that and again this ties into into sense making as well is that data is considered to be cold raw information that is just uh, gospel is just um unequivocal truth if you like that's how a lot of people approach data like data analytics and all that kind of stuff the problem is when you leave out human intuition or you leave out the human element of things you can end up with grave mistakes one of the things he says in this book is it's important to remember that all this data all the analytics that's done in this data is done by humans humans wrote the code that analyzes the data the data is collected by humans in the first place statistics are not facts and that's what's worth keeping in mind here. Statistics are not facts. So the first thing he says that when you're presented with a statistic or a, a statistic even as a fact or a, a, a set of data, the first thing you need to check is plausibility. Now, of course, this is not going to be possible for every single piece of data that you ever come across. But the important stuff, it's, it's worth thinking about how plausible is this data and he says the the author uh, Daniel Levitin he says that there's three kinds of errors that can lead you to thinking things or believing things that are just not true the first thing is how are the numbers collected who's the person who actually you know ran the report to get this data from the CRM how are they interpreted who interpreted them and the third thing then how are they presented graphically because graphs can trip you up all the time and he actually finishes this particular section in the book with a uh, 
with the screen grab from Fox News, and um, it was back in in twenty twelve and the the uh, the GOP is that the the great old party or something the, the Republican Party, the twenty twelve presidential um, nominees right, and they said that in the screen grab on on it's like a graphic on screen it says that seventy percent of people backed. Palin, Sarah Palin, 60% backed Mitt Romney and 63% backed Huckabee, is that Mike Huckabee I think his name is the problem is is how they presented this data they presented it as a pie chart now if you're you know 12 years old and you're in school you know that a pie chart has to add up to 100% Can't the numbers here were 70% for Palin, 60% for Romney and 63% for Huckabee so you know, if if a national broadcaster can't be bothered getting it right, you know those things they just they just sail past us. You don't even you don't even consider these things that are completely wrong. We just kind of go, oh yeah, that's uh, interesting numbers. These things matter. It's how this data is presented to us graphically because he says in his book as well that we're, the human brain is not set up to understand raw information on an Excel sheet, for example. That we we look for patterns in data and we want it visually displayed so you look at big pile of numbers in an excel sheet you're like ah, just show it to me in a graph show me a, a, a pie chart or a, a histogram or you know whatever put it into a graph in some way so i can understand it visually so in this chapter on uh, plausibility he gives lots of examples I'll, I'll read out one of the examples here he says, in the 35 years since marijuana laws stopped being enforced in California, the number of marijuana smokers has doubled every year. Now, that's the kind of statistic that you would hear on the news or read on a, on a newspaper somewhere, online somewhere, and think, God, that's mad, doubled every year. But he says, well, because it sounds it sounds reasonable when you just kind of think, God, it's the amount of marijuana users or marijuana smokers has, has doubled every year in the last 35 years. So uh, I'll read out the numbers here. He says, um, he says, let's assume that there is uh, one marijuana smoker in California 35 years ago, which is a fairly, fairly conservative estimate. And he said, if you double that number every year for 35 years, you get to more than 17 billion people, which is clearly not possible because that's more than there is in California. And in fact, more than there is on earth presently. So, it just doesn't make sense, but it sounds plausible. It's the amount of marijuana smokers has doubled every year in the last 35 years. And that chapter continues like that for a while, actually. It goes on, and this is literally, I'm on page four here of the book, and it's already getting you to think about how the, 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 the data, the statistics that we're bombarded with all the time, it's, you know, we just a lot of the time we don't question these things, but how plausible is it? And who, who's actually getting this information? One of the things he says uh, about Colgate toothpaste, and we've, you've, everyone has heard this or, or read this at the, the bottom of the screen, is that uh, four out of five dentists recommend Colgate toothpaste. But what Colgate don't tell you in that ad is that the dentists that were asked, they were able to recommend more than one toothpaste. So they recommended all the toothpastes. But Colgate don't tell you that. They just say four out of five dentists recommend Colgate. And it's again, it's one of those things you just don't, you just don't question. You go, oh, Colgate is, you know, four out of five dentists. That sounds uh, like that's the best to toothpaste. But all the other toothpaste can say that as well. Side note on toothpaste: you look at the ads for toothpaste. Look how much toothpaste the uh, person in the ad puts onto the brush. 
they put loads on, they fill the entire brush. That's to make you use more toothpaste so that you'll buy more, right? So watch out for that one. A pea-sized amount is all you need. Not the uh, not the entire brush. So there you go. That's for free, that one. Um, what else then? So, oh, this is a brilliant one. Um, about Nicolas Cage, right? Who doesn't like Nicolas Cage? Everyone likes Nicolas Cage. But what he says is that this is what statistics can convince you of. He says the number of people who drowned by falling into a pool um, between, I think it's 1999 and 2009. Uh, so in that 10-year period, the number of people who drowned by falling into a pool correlates with the number of films Nicolas Cage appeared in. So statistically, you could say that the more films Nicolas Cage appeared in, the more people died by drowning in pools, which is clearly nonsense. That's what you call correlation and not causation. And it's something that people get mixed up with all the time when it comes to statistics and data and information. It's And it's it can be a very, very gray area to show that something isn't just correlated, it's actually causing it, it's causation. Um, and that's, a, a, I think, a brilliant example that uh, the number of films Nicolas Cage appeared in correlates to the number of people who drowned by falling into a pool in America between 1999 and 2009. Um, madness, right? It's just, it, but it's it just goes to show that you can make statistics do whatever you want them to do if you look hard enough, which is uh, the job of some people um, in marketing departments. So it's it's worth keeping in, in mind um, that just because something is written written in a in a serious font or something is said in a serious tone doesn't make it true. Doesn't mean you should question absolutely everything, but it just means you should have your eyes open a bit more to um, to how we're interpreting data that's out there. Let's say you go out into your garden on a Tuesday and you are bored, so you decide to measure the height of one particular dandelion in your back garden or your backyard for my American friends. And it's four inches tall. And you look again on Thursday, so this is on a Tuesday you did this, you look again on a Thursday and it's six inches tall. So how high do you think it was on a Wednesday? Right, on that particular on that particular Wednesday, in between the Tuesday and the Thursday. Tuesday, it's four inches tall. Thursday, it's six inches tall. If you were to take a guess how tall it was on the Wednesday, you don't know for sure because you didn't measure it on the Wednesday. Um, but you can guess. It was probably five inches on the Wednesday. This is what's called interpolation or interpolation, uh, depending on how you pronounce it. And what that does is it's, it's a way of understanding data where you take two data points and estimate the value that would have occurred in between them if you had taken a measurement there. So how high is the dandelion going to be after six months? Well, if it's growing one inch per day, um, it's going to grow to uh, 180 inches more, which is um, about 180 days. So it's going to be 15 and a half feet high, right? That's called extrapolation. That's extrapolating on from your last measurement and extrapolating forward from there. Your dandelion is not going to be, whatever I said, 15 and a half feet high. Dandelions don't grow that tall. They either they die in the wither or they collapse under their own weight or they get mown down by the, the lawnmower. Your dandelion is never going to get to 15 and a half feet tall. So interpolation is useful when you've got when you're looking at two points of data or you know several points of data and you're looking for something in between those points of data it can be useful to use that but extrapolation or extrapolation depending on how you pronounce it 
it's not going it's not perfect either because you know if you extrapolate out from your last measurement of six inches on the thursday for the dandelion it is not going to be 15 and a half feet tall it's not going to be an, an extra 180 inches tall after six months that's extrapolation completely falls apart he goes on then to talk in the book about the word access uh, especially when it's given by you know news outlets or uh, the, or governments in, in countries the word access is a very very useful word depending on what you wanted to wanted to achieve I'll read out a, a quote that I've underlined here from the book it says access is one of those words that should raise red flags when you encounter them in statistics people having access to healthcare might simply mean that they live near a medical facility not that the facility would admit them or that they could afford to pay for it that's a really interesting thing to think about access as well you know uh, two-thirds of the world have access to clean toilets but do they you know I just made that statistic up but you know whatever the statistic is if the word access is in there what's the what's the interpretation of the word access all of these the whole point of this book and it's I suppose I've been kind of talking around this a bit but the whole point of this book is to help you make sense of the information that's coming at you all the time is to make sense of well who says it's true how do i know it's true and i suffer from this like anyone else does as well that information is you're just bombarded with it all the time and it all seems very plausible but if something is really important to you or something really matters to you dig into it and this goes for you know your your day-to-day -day life but also your your working life as well where somebody presents you with a report think critically about it think about the humans behind this data what are they telling you and more specifically as well what are they not telling you what's in the negative space that is not being mentioned in the report so if you're say a, a VC a venture capitalist where you're, you're looking to invest money into startups and somebody comes in to pitch to you and it might sound great but you think well what are they what are they not told me what's in the negative space there and how have they massaged this data and what does that word actually mean and what's your interpretation of the word access those are the kinds of things that you need to think about that like he says in the book and I have it underlined that statistics are not facts and that's a hugely important point to take away from this book that statistics are not facts but they are often presented as if they are he goes on then to dedicate an entire chapter to how numbers are collected and this is something that is uh, very interesting because there's all sorts of biases that goes into how numbers are collected one of the things he talks about is a an infamous error in the 1936 US presidential election where they said that uh, the the Republican Alf Landon was his name he was going to win over the Democrat who was President Roosevelt but the problem was that the sample that they polled was all they were all basically Republicans that's the point the point of the story in the book here so by the time they collated all their data and um, made sense of it all they said oh, well, well clearly our guy is going to win the Republican guy is going to win but the sampling wasn't correct and that's a big problem when it comes to collecting data where did the information come from who actually uh, took part another uh, type of bias then and this is all to do with how numbers are collected is participation bias those who are willing to participate in a study and those who uh, who are not I'm reading from the book here now may differ along important dimensions such as political views personalities and incomes again that kind of bias leads you to uh, to skewer your numbers so you don't actually know um, 
when you've got a, a, a proper cross-section of the market that you're looking to, to speak to. Then there's reporting bias. Um, sometimes people lie when they're asked for their opinions because they don't want to say the wrong thing or, they, you know, there's all sorts of reasons why people might lie. And then there's the measurement error, right? <laughs> Look back to the, the, the 2016 US presidential election. I think they had Hillary in by uh, 98% of the people were going to vote for Hillary and uh, Trump might get 2% and there was a 1% margin of error or something. It was like Hillary Clinton was an absolute shoe and even uh, Trump didn't think that Hillary was going to get in. I think if you've read the book um, Fire and Fury, um, all about the White House, it was there's some stories in there about how Trump had absolutely no intention of being the president of America until 30 minutes later and he decided, yeah, I could do this. In fact, I'm the greatest president that America's ever had, um, which is uh, fairly consistent with how he is but anyway the, the point is that um when it comes to collecting data the poll numbers cannot always be trusted um i, I mean there's no there's no better example than uh, the 2016 election that had hillary as an absolute shoe-in and we all know what happened there one of the final things he talks about in in that particular chapter then is definitions know how like i said earlier on how's the word access actually defined and one of the ones that i like and i'm afraid to look this up and um, because i don't want to know if it's false is uh in in ireland uh people bet on whether it's going to be a white christmas or not i remember having the thought there years ago thinking well, what what actually counts as a white christmas how much snow do we need to actually have for it to be considered a white Christmas. And the statistic I found, and like I said, I do not want to know if this is not true because it's my favorite thing ever. I understood, or I still understand, that it is considered a white Christmas in Ireland if there is one snowflake that falls within a designated one square meter at either Dublin Airport or Cork Airport. And I want that to be true more than I want anything to be true. So I'm just going to believe that. That is now what I consider to be uh, the, the gospel. <laughs> Given what I'm talking about in this particular uh, episode, it's I should probably look into, it, but I don't want to know. I think that's a it's a great uh, it's a great way of, of um, deciding whether something's a, a white Christmas or not. Uh, one snowflake in a, a designated one square meter at an airport. How brilliant is that? But anyway, de definitions is, is a key thing. Uh, you know, just think of the word access. How, how access to clean toilets, access to, to medical care, what does that actually mean? What is what is the definition of the word access? The next section then in the book is about probabilities. And I think I've kind of covered that because we talked about the Monty Hall uh, problem at the very beginning and how, how probabilities work. Um, j just one thing to, to point out, and again, I apologize if you're a mathematician or an engineer listening to this, but one thing to point out about probabilities is that it's not a guarantee of something. That if you flip a coin, it's a 50-50 chance that you'll get heads or tails, right? Which so is a, a, a fairly standard thing, right? You flip a coin to decide between two, op two options. But that doesn't mean you could, you could flip a coin 100 times and 70 times you could get heads and 30 times you could get tails. And you think, well, I thought it was supposed to be 50-50. The point is that if you flip that coin an infinite number of times, it would get closer to 50-50, um, to, 50, 50 to you know, <laughs> half of infinity. That's just people probably screaming at me now. There is no such thing as half of infinity is still infinity. 
but half of infinity they would be uh, heads and the other half of infinity would be tails and the clo it's it's an approximation is what you're doing is you're, you're getting closer and closer to um to what the mathematics say um, so, so anyway, there's a whole section here on probability, and this book is a brilliant, brilliant insight into how probabilities work, into how um, they can, once the, once probabilities are understood, how they can then be massaged and uh, uh, twisted to make them say different things, which is like what marketing teams really do a lot of the time. So section two then of the book, or part two I should say, is about evaluating words. So after you've understood numbers and, and, and what they're for, how do you actually go about understanding words then? He says there's three ways that we can acquire information. Number one, we can discover it, our, discover it ourselves. Number two, we can absorb it implicitly. And number three, we can be told it explicitly. And all three have a, uh, all three are real and important, but it's about understanding, well, how do I know something is true? For example, he says, I've never seen an atom of oxygen or a molecule of water but there is a body of literature describing meticulously conducted experiments that lead me to believe these exist. And he goes on with lots of other examples of things that, you know, we know to be true because, you know, we, other people have tested them and we, we believe them when they, when, they, uh, when they tell us that these things are true. One of the things he says that uh, an example he gives is that, you know, you go to one website and it claims that listening to Mozart music for... 20 minutes a day will make you smarter. Another website says it's absolutely not true. And he says the problem here is that a lot of the time people make emotional decisions and uh, they justify them with logic afterwards, which is, I was delighted to read that because that's exactly what I said or what is said in one of our other podcasts about to sell as human. Uh, and that book and that, that podcast is, we actually did three podcasts on that book, To Sell as Human by Dan Pink. It is a, um, it's an interesting way to understand what selling actually is, that it's an emotional decision backed up with logic afterwards. Same thing when you're deciding what's true and what isn't true, that listening to music, or particularly Mozart, Mozart music, 20 minutes a day makes you smarter, and people say it's absolutely not true. Well, maybe you happen to like classical music and think, well, if it makes me smarter, then I'm definitely gonna do that. So I remember reading a, a, a it's an article in the newspaper years ago saying that uh, porridge is, is now known to cause cancer. And I was like, well, that's enough statistics for me. That's that's ridiculous. It's just oats and water. How could madness, right? So they can they can make these things tell you anything that they want them to make make you tell them. And uh, it's very easy to justify things if you if you've already decided that they're going to be true. Another way he says to decide if something is true or not, how to interpret these words is who, who the person who's saying it who are they connected to it's like having something in a in a peer-reviewed journal right if you can you really identify expertise like are is this person a member of a professional organization that has accredited their uh, work experience or their qualifications um, have they written something for a well-known journal that is uh, peer reviewed that people who are not connected to the individual have said yes we can we can confirm that this stuff uh, checks out who says they're the expert just because somebody says something with confidence doesn't necessarily mean uh, that they are the expert right because expertise is, is basically a social judgment right we're comparing one person's skill to the skill level of other people in the world expertise is relative and he gives the example in the book here that Albert Einstein was an expert on physics 60 years ago. But if you 
brought him back to life today, would he be an expert? No. He, of course, he could get up to speed, but he, he'd be he'd be sixty years behind basically. So he wouldn't be considered an expert, and that's what it means by by being uh, being relative. Another great way to check somebody's expertise online is um, if you really want to, to figure something out is through what's called Google Backlinks. Now, you need to know a little bit about um, the, the Google Search Console, which is not just google.com. It's um, a way to, to understand a website from the back end of it, basically. A backlink is essentially, let's say you took um, Amazon, right, as, as an example. How many other websites have linked to Amazon. How many people have said, go here and buy the book, go here and buy the hat stand, go here and buy the guitar, right, go, go, whatever. That's what Google uses to test whether something is trustworthy or not. If other websites have linked back to that particular website, they'll rank that website higher. So Amazon, you know, is obviously one of the most well-known websites in the world. It ranks very highly in Google, right? If you search for something, it'll it'll always come up there on Amazon. And it's because millions and millions and millions of other websites have linked back to Amazon. So if you want to think about something that you're reading on the internet, if you really wanted to get into the weeds on it, you could go to the to, uh, Google Search Console and look up backlinks for this website. How many websites are linked back to this website that you're reading something on? If it's only a handful, then maybe there's it might look like they're a great um, website and very authoritative but it might not necessarily be. So I'm going to finish with one particular section that he talks about here, and it kind of, I suppose, ties into what I said near the beginning there, but uh, negative knowledge or, you know, things, the negative space, things that are not being said, he calls it counter knowledge. He says, the main reason why so many people are dying of cancer is that they're not dying of other things first. You have to die of something. And he says, it's like, it's like saying that half of all cars in Argentina will suffer complete engine failure during the life of the car, which sounds like a really terrible statistic that cars in Argentina are not that well made. But a car has to die of something. A car, like, if a car lives for 50 years, its engine will eventually fail, right? So, you know, you would think 100% of cars are going to suffer from engine failure during the, the uh, duration of their lifetime. It's an interesting way just to understand data and to understand knowledge and to understand uh, the bombardment of information that's coming at you. It's, it is, there's great ways in this book for you to, I suppose, question the things that need to be questioned a bit more and to both personally and professionally and to make sure that you're not just being bamboozled by data because I, don't, I honestly don't think it matters if you're super intelligent or uh, not particularly intelligent, we're all bombarded with data all the time. And sometimes it's worth just hitting the pause button and think, well, hang on, how do I know that's true? Who says that's true? Is it plausible? Where's the information coming from? This book is full of ways to check whether it's uh, whether what you're understanding to be true actually is true, whether something is a fact or not. And in the end, it will just be a judgment call. Even when somebody is considered to be an expert, That'll be down to you ultimately to decide, well, are they an expert or not? And I guess that's why it's called a field guide to lies and statistics. So until next time, thanks very much for tuning in. And uh, please tell everybody that you know about usebecause.com. Hey, before you go, just a quick message about usebecause.com and what we're all about. If you want to get more and go deeper, head over to usebecause.com to get your content served three different ways. Firstly, our courses 
We take the content from books just like the one in this episode and teach it to you through a suite of bespoke e-learning tools that ensure you understand, remember and deliberately practice your newly acquired knowledge. It's a way to measure your soft skills. So head over to usebecause.com and click on the courses page. Secondly, more podcast episodes. Usually, it's one episode a week covering the actionable content from a non-fiction book. You can find all these episodes at usebecause.com forward slash podcast. Finally, our blog, where we write about some of these books and some of our own learnings about the world and how it works. And there at usebecause.com forward slash blog. If you enjoy this content and you can think of anyone else who might also enjoy it, please just let them know because we want to teach as many people as we can. You can follow us on Twitter or Instagram or sign up for our newsletter. So until next time.